as we talk about going back to school, uh, we have three kids, as I mentioned, going to three separate schools and really significant transitions for us. My oldest is going into high school. Pray for your pastor. Uh, my, my, my middle is going to middle school for the first time, my son, and then my youngest is just staying in elementary school. Uh, but as I've thought about all of that, and as I've thought about our passage this week, I, I thought about my, my son who's going to middle school for the first time. And I, I thought about just his birth. We're gonna look at the birth of Moses in our story this morning. And I was thinking about his birth. It was, it was a fascinating time the birth of Ashwin. Uh, you, could, you could tell a story about it. Maybe you could write a movie about it. It was kind of like a movie. You see some backdrop. Our first child, uh, we had, Jaya had uh, a very smooth labor. I, I did not have anything to do with that part of it. She did it all, okay? And uh, I think she would even say it was smooth as labors go, right? It took a long time. Uh, she packed a bag as her water broke. Like she went to the hospital. She slept through part of her labor. We were there for a long time, but it wasn't a lot of agony or crying or tears or yelling. It was kind of a smooth labor. So when we were pregnant with our second child, we kind of thought, hey, we're seasoned vets at this. Like we got this, let's just take our time. No need to go to the hospital early. Let's just take our time. And I remember it was in the middle of the night and I, you know, my wife was having contractions. I'm like, you doing okay? And, and she's like, yeah, it's fine. We don't need to go yet. I'm like, okay, sure. I'd go back to sleep. And, uh, She'd have more contractions and wake up and like, you still doing okay? Yeah, I think we got a few hours. It's, it's fine. I mean, remember the last time we were just sitting up at the hospital? Who wants to do that? Let's just stay home. I think we got more time. And then I woke up at about 3.50 in the morning and my wife was bent over and she said to me, Tim, we don't have more time. <laughs> it's happening. And so I jump out of bed it was like a movie, people. I was driving to the hospital in Austin, Texas at 4 a.m., running red lights 100 miles per hour, okay? Like for my wife, all right? And, and so we get to the hospital and listen, they didn't have time for the epidural, which my wife was not thrilled about. And they just had time to will us into the hospital room. She gets up in the bed, she pushes twice and Ashwin, our son, is born. Like we barely made it. Like I had all the thoughts of like, if this happens in the car, like I've seen some movies, like, I don't know if I can do this though. And I mean, I just, let me just tell you, like having a son for me, I'm like, I, my daughter, I have two daughters, they own me. I mean, they just own my heart. They have me, okay? And yet being a father of a son just, is just kind of special and unique. And I'd always dreamed about it, like playing sports with my son and, and all those sorts of things. So we knew we were having a son. Man, we went all out. We decorated his room. We handmade a Dallas Cowboys sign to put in his room, backlit. Like we went over the top. And I appreciate the claps about God's team, okay? Um, it's good to know who the real Christians are in this room, but we just... <laughs> We just went all out, like, and we announced it from the rooftops. Like, I have a son. I got him all this sports equipment, not like baby sports equipment, like real sports equipment that he probably wasn't going to use for like eight years and that he just slobbered on. But I was so excited. Just like, I have a son. I was so excited. Now, I'll tell you that story because it couldn't be further from the opposite of what happens in our text today. As we show up, we're in Exodus chapter two today. That's where we're starting out. And we see the birth of Moses and they're not announcing from the rooftops, we have a son. But what we see in Exodus chapter two is they are hiding their son. And what we get in the, the context is we know that in this 
moment, there is a genocide happening that the Pharaoh at the time, the king of Egypt, he's trying to kill every Hebrew baby boy because at this time, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, they had grown to numerous amounts. And, and this Pharaoh is seeing this and saying, hey, I can't control all these people anymore. I, I need to start to end these people. And so we see this, this couple have this baby boy, but it's not a celebratory moment. And it's not announcing from the rooftops. No, that they're hiding him away. And what looks to be a disaster is really part of deliverance. And it is that way because of a girl named Miriam. We see this girl, Miriam, show up in Exodus chapter two. She's Moses' and Aaron's sister. And I think one of the things as we look at all these people in the Bible and this Broken People, Big God series, man, some of them you know about. Some of them you saw on flannel graphs or Veggie Tales. Some of you've seen movies made about these people. And then some of them are lesser known. Miriam would qualify as a lesser known person in the Bible. And yet, as we jump into some of her story, what you see is Moses this really powerful character, this Charlton Heston, Christian Bale, Prince of Egypt, Moses, superhero character that, that gets the spotlight in the whole story of Exodus. What you see with that is Moses wouldn't even exist if it wasn't for Miriam. And so we're gonna look at her sort of bit story and see how it has a big impact, All right? And in fact, if you take notes, you can write this down. Here's our big idea. It's that with God, every small step has the potential for significant impact. With God, every small step has the potential for significant impact. So we're gonna look at that. Exodus 2, Exodus 15, we'll see some background on Miriam's story, how it relates to our story. So look at Exodus 2, 1 through 10 with me. It says this. It says, now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman, the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child or beautiful child, some translations, healthy child is maybe the best translation. When she saw that he was a healthy or fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant women and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. If you take notes, our first point is this, it's resourceful rescue, resourceful rescue. Now, if you grew up in church, I think this scene, you, you probably have seen it in an image or a painting or a flannel graph. You've seen this idea of like this little cute baby in a basket and you see Pharaoh's daughter come along and, and come to the rescue. But, but I want you to see and kind of look, dig in here. This is the Nile River. 
This is not a small, still creek. The Nile River is the longest river on the planet. And this is in the middle of a genocide. It's not just a cute, sanitized moment. Like people are out to kill babies like Moses and his parents know that. In fact, as I read this, I thought, man, what courage and bravery of the parents to get married and have a baby in the middle of this kind of season. But they do, right? And, and so this is sort of the, the gritty, grimy moment that we're in is this massive river, but you see this little baby in a basket hiding out in the reeds. And his parents were so desperate. Hey, if we, if we don't do this, if we do this, he might die. But if we don't do this, he surely will die. And so they hide him away in this basket in this Nile River. And you see really a a scene that could end in disaster, right? I mean, it just, that has all the ingredients for a disaster. Baby just topples over, drowns. Somebody does find him and just kill him anyway. And what could end in disaster actually ends in deliverance because Miriam walks in. And you could almost miss it. Like our, our big idea really reflects all my study throughout the week. This is a really simple sort of small, subtle story. Miriam's not mentioned a lot. And yet, if we really pay attention, we see he uses her for significant impact, right? If you look at it with me, verse four, it says she stays behind to watch over her baby brother. This is Miriam, the older sister of Moses. And we see she steps up to Pharaoh's daughter, this princess who walks up on the scene. And I just think both of those are so resourceful. And both of those didn't have to happen, right? Like as, as, as Moses' parents put him in the basket in the river, I would just think the older daughter, she comes back with them, right? But she doesn't do that. She simply stays and she watches over her baby brother. Right? I don't know if she's behind a bush, behind a tree, hiding, but she just... She's still there. And scholars think that she was maybe between eight and 12 years old at the time. So just try to wrap your mind around that. She stays, she wants to watch over her baby brother, right? Some of you are thinking, how can I teach my older daughter that, (laughs) right? Just read this to him, okay? And she stays and she doesn't just stay, she steps up. She sees Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, again, in the middle of the genocide caused by her parents. And she steps up when she could have stayed back. She steps up and she starts eight to 12 years old, starts talking to this princess and says, Hey, you know, what would be a good idea. If you're interested in this baby, uh, he probably is going to be nursed, need to be nursed. Do you want me to go get one of the Hebrew women to nurse him? And it says in the text, she goes not just to get any Hebrew woman. She goes to get Moses's mother, her mother, How resourceful of Miriam, amen? I mean, eight to 12 years old, she has the foresight, she stays behind, she steps up, she has the boldness, the courage to to say something in the midst of this. She could have stayed back. She could have seen Pharaoh's daughter, like maybe get Moses and rescue him. Maybe at least he lives, but she doesn't wanna leave that up to chance. She steps out. She's resourceful. She thinks, she strategizes and thinks, nursing. I know that needs to happen. Why don't I offer? Why don't I go get our mom to do it? And before you know it, this unlikely turn of events, this what could have been a disaster, it turns into a beautiful moment where you have Moses' mother reunited with her little baby boy. 
And she's getting to nurse him. And if you noticed in the text, for wages, that means she got paid by Pharaoh's daughter to nurse her own baby. And some of you newborn mothers are thinking, how can I get in on that? Right? And that's what happens. And why does it happen? Seemingly simple, small. I don't know. When you read it, did you even notice that? That was me the first time I read it. Just simple, small steps, but significant impact. Miriam, with just this bit story, a big impact. Moses is delivered in this way. Now we know he goes to the palace. He's not forever with his mom, even though maybe he was with his mom for about two years. Time she didn't have with him or think she would. He goes to this palace, is is raised by Pharaoh, but we know he's eventually a fugitive and he comes back. It was all part of God's story of deliverance, but he chose to use Miriam. He chose to use her resourceful rescue, these seemingly simple steps for significant impact. And it's powerful. And the reality is God is like that. If you're new to the faith or you just need to be reminded, you need to know God uses the simple, the mundane, even the resourceful acts against all odds. And he uses those for significant impact. I remember early on in our church's story, this this happened. We saw an example of this. We saw a girl show up to our church. Her name was Sarah Solomon. Uh, she was a girl from Italy. She just moved over to the States and she jo- like just jumped right into our church. And I remember I was talking to her one of the first times I met her. I just said, hey, Sarah, from Italy to Phoenix, like how did you find Phoenix Bible Church? Because at the time we were meeting in a high school. Like I don't think people in Phoenix could find us, much less people coming from Italy. And so I'm talking with her and she's like, well, I know Colin. And first it didn't register. And I was like, Colin. She's like, yeah, you know, Colin from Scotland. And I was like, oh yeah, I I remember Colin. You see, I had met Colin in Austin, Texas. He was from Scotland. He'd come over to Austin and he was trying to intern at churches in the States because he wanted to be a minister of the gospel. And I met with him for coffee one time. And I told him we didn't have a spot for him because he didn't have his visa and all those sorts of things. And so he went back to Italy uh, and was able to get a visa there and do some ministry there. And he ended up at a church where he met a girl named Sarah Solomon. And at this church where he met a girl named Sarah Solomon, she tells him, hey, I'm about to move to Phoenix, Arizona. And he says, man, you got to connect with this guy, Tim Birdwell, Phoenix Bible Church. Great guy, great church. Now, I had one coffee with him and I turned him down. but he sent her to our church. And so I'm talking with her that day and I'm like, you've gotta be kidding me. This is amazing. Sarah ended up getting baptized in our church. Sarah ended up getting married in our church. Single people, you never know what God can do. Simple step, significant impact. And now they're serving in Wisconsin at a church. Her husband Emmett is on staff at a church and we still get to talk with them and hear about what God is doing. Just Colin shows. Sarah chose just simple but significant steps that God would use. I was thinking about it in our church right now. There's a lady on our uh, host team, uh, part of our greeting team, who calls people. Her name's Lori Campbell. She calls people who visit our church. I remember one Sunday we were interviewing up here on, on a stage, and she was talking about that, how we, people fill out a connect card, and she gives them a call and just says, how can I serve you and connect with you? We want to come back on Sunday. And, uh, and that's how a lot of people connect to our church. And I remember after the service, one lady came up to me, and she said, she does call people. <laughs> Just so you know, she, she called me twice. And that's a big reason why I'm here today. 
And I just think about, man, it's so simple, so subtle, a phone call. And yet God uses it for significant impact. And, and I just thought about Miriam's story and this sort of bit story with big impact. And I just wonder, what are the moments in your life, the simple steps in your life that you tend to downplay that God wants to, to take your attention up to him on? What, what are those simple moments, those simple conversations, the simple desire to stay, the simple desire to step up and say something when you could remain silent? The simple strategy, some of you you, you, you don't connect with church because you're like, well, Tim, praying and singing and all these sorts of things. Like, I'm a business person. Like, I think strategy, I think pragmatically. Listen, God can use those simple steps for significant impact in his church too, amen? God can use like simple budgeting. We just talked about that earlier for big impact. God can use all of these things for significant impact. And many times we immediately say, well, not mine. Not this simple step. I mean, this doesn't matter. Some of you moms feel this way. Like, this is taking me out of the workforce. I'm just taking care of these little kids all the time. And God, God is using every simple step, every subtle word to raise those kids up. You're, you're investing in the next generation. I always say this, if mothers who stay at home, not that that's what I'm telling you to do, but I'm just saying, if mothers who stayed at home got paid, it would be like a million dollar salary a year. Amen? Men, amen? <laughs> and, and we love all our women that are out in the workforce too. And I'm just saying, we, we, sometimes we downplay these things and God can use these things. And we see that in the life of Miriam. What, what simple step are you downplaying right now that God is calling you to do that could have significant impact? That's what we see in the life of Miriam. Here's the second thing we see. The last thing we see is resilient rejoicing. If you have a Bible, you can flip ahead uh, to Exodus 15, or you can just look along the screen with me. Exodus 15, verses 19 through 21. This is fast forwarding like 80 years. The parting of the Red Sea happens. We saw Miriam's rescue of her little brother, Moses. Now we're gonna see God's rescue uh, of all the Israelite people through the parting of the Red Sea. That has happened. And then we see in Exodus 15, a praise party is breaking out, people. Starting in verse 19, it says, for when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. If you didn't catch that, this is a praise party. There is singing, dancing, and you know it's a praise party when there is a tambourine. Amen? And this is part of a bigger praise party. Exodus 15, if you go back and read the whole chapter, Moses is leading people in singing. Everybody's singing. Everybody's rejoicing this rescue that they just experienced. They've been rescued out of slavery. They are now free. And this is huge in the life of the Israelites. They had been slaves for about 400 years. All they had known was bondage. All their parents had known was bondage. All their grandparents had known was bondage and slavery. And now they are, are free. And they're celebrating like they're free. They're praising God. They're singing. They have tambourines. They're, they're, they're dancing. They're, they're rejoicing over the rescue they have experienced. And what I love about Miriam is she's not just joining the praise party. No, she's leading the praise party. 
And if you notice in the text, she sings and the women sing back to her. She's leading out in this. You notice in the text as well, she's called the prophetess. She's a female prophet. There's a few of those across our Bibles where, where God is, is giving a word to a person. That was what a prophet was. And that person is now proclaiming that word to the people. And Miriam is that. Little old Miriam, like eight to 12 years old, who stepped out these little subtle acts. She's now helping lead God's people. We see that in Micah 6.4. God actually says, he reminds the people then, Hey, you remember when I rescued the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery and I sent Moses, but also Aaron and Miriam. She's a significant leader in this movement and God's using her even as she's rejoicing. And I just, I thought about that rejoicing and I just tried to picture that scene. 400 years of slavery and now they're free. 80 years for Miriam since she rescued her little brother from the Nile River, 80 years. I wondered how many times in that waiting was she wrestling? God, was there a purpose to that? Was it, is, are you still gonna bring an ultimate rescue? I mean, I get to be a part of rescuing my little brother, but we're kind of hoping that all of our people, two million people at this time who were enslaved would be rescued and it would somehow tie back to that. In 80 years, she doesn't see any of that. And I wondered how much wrestling, how much wondering was in that waiting. And then now to see her rejoicing and it finally coming to pass. How many of you know, like, if you've been resilient in life, you've gone through some pain in life, some waiting in life, but then you eventually see rescue. Like the rejoicing is great anytime, but when you've been resilient, when you're still here, when you're still following God, man, that rejoicing hits a little bit different. Like when you've been praying for that, that child to come to know Christ, to come back to God, to come back to church. And it's not just taken like a few days, it's taken years. And then he finally does it. And you're still there. You still have relationship with your child. You've still been praying every day for that child. You've still been sharing the gospel with that child. And you see him come back to church. You see her come back to Christ. And there's something that hits differently about that rejoicing. There's something that hits differently when we start singing about a God who rescues people. And you know, it's not just people in general, but my own child who I thought was gone is home in Christ. And that rejoicing, I mean, if we, if we had some tambourines, some of you might grab one if that happened. That rejoicing after resiliency hits a little bit differently. Some of you know what this like, is like in your marriage. Some of you are here today and you're holding the hand of your spouse, but there was a day when that was not the case. And maybe it was just a few months, maybe it was a few years of just coldness and not engaging with one another, just being shoulder to shoulder with one another. Yeah, we pay the bills, we live together, but we're basically roommates, not spouses. But now God has stirred your love for one another in light of his love for you unconditionally, and now you, you have an engaged, you're not just shoulder to shoulder, you're face to face with your spouse. And you know, like, man, if that happened over years and the hardships and you're looking at all your friends who are getting divorces and who are just saying, I'm hitting the eject button and you decided to stay and you saw God heal your marriage. Man, somebody, like, you lift up a shout when you're singing because you know the darkness and now you've experienced the light. I, I thought about our church. 
I, I thought about the many people from Bethany Bible Church who some of them have been at this place, at this campus for 50, 60 years. And they've seen a lot of amazing things, but they've also seen a lot of hard things. And they've seen a lot of waiting and wondering, God, do you have a plan? Do you have a purpose for this group, for this body of believers? Now, I remember our Christmas Eve service. It was just our, our first sort of preview service of what this could be. And I remember in the front row, I'm getting ready to preach. And right next to me is an older lady in our church. She's been here 60 years and she's sobbing. And I, I went to her and I just said, hey, are you okay? Like, is there anything wrong? Can I help? And she said, no. And she looked back at, at this and she said, I've been praying for this for years. We weren't even like fully into the service yet. She was weeping, rejoicing. There's something that hits different when you are resilient through, through pain, through loss, through waiting like Miriam, and then you see the rescue, meant a praise party breaks out. And that's, that's, if you didn't know, that's why we sing every Sunday. <laughs> I, I know singing in church, like some of you kind of like, you're like humming along, you know, some of you have different styles in this. Some of you, just, you, you close your eyes. Some of you, you kind of wait for it to be over. Some of you come in late for the singing and just for the sermon or whatever. Like, oh, it's just kind of a weird thing, right? The reason why we sing and rejoice is because what we see in Exodus chapter 15 sets a pattern in all of scripture that when God acts, when God rescues, we rejoice. When we've experienced death to life, darkness to light, we rejoice. That's why Psalms is in the book of the Bible. Psalms just means songs. There are 150 songs in our Old Testament. Rejoicing. Psalm 77 is specifically about this rescue in the book of Exodus. And they're rejoicing. They're singing about it. And many of you know, if you would stop and think about it, you know why we sing, because you know how powerful it is. Many of you know, like, like that song that you find on Spotify from the 1980s or 90s, or 2000s, and, and immediately you listen to that song by U2 or whatever your favorite band was, and immediately you're back in that field at that concert, and you're thinking about that time of your life, and you're thinking about what was amazing and what was hard, and, and music has that power. And so that's what, why we sing. We sing to be reminded of God, to be reminded of his rescue, to be reminded of even in our waiting, he was working. That's why we sing. That's why we celebrate every single Sunday. I've seen the power of this even in my kids' lives. Man, they just, they hear a song. I could teach them something. I could speak something to them all the time and they wouldn't remember any of it. And yet they hear it in a song and they remember every single word. Now listen, sometimes that's scary. Sometimes it's beautiful. Like the other day, my son is rapping to Eminem. A classic, Lose Yourself. It's a great song actually, but um, if I'm honest, but, you know, the clean version. Um, but he's kind of like, and I'm like, oh my gosh, like, wow, you're really picking up that, like, lose yourself in the moment, like, sweaty, palms are sweaty, arms are heavy. I can't even remember it all, but he, he does. I just lost some of you guys who have no idea who Eminem is. That's okay. <laughs> it's not a requirement for attending Phoenix Bible Church. But then I also saw, like, this Phil Wickham song was playing in our house. 
And it was, it just went like this, like, this is our God. This is who he is. He loves us. This is our God. This is what he does. He saves us. And my two little kids were singing this word for word. And I asked them like, do you guys sing that in kids ministry? They were like, nope. And they were like, we sing that in church. And I was like, I know the set list. We have never sung that song, that song in church. I think they just hear it like on Caleb with my wife. Because I don't usually listen to Caleb. Um, but <laughs> even in that moment, I'm like, because I don't, I don't usually love those songs, but I'm like, my kids are learning God loves them and he saves them. And they're reciting it back to me. And I'm like, this is why we sing. This is why we sing. This is why they, they sang. There's power in that. And I know some of us feel like, well, well Tim, I don't, I don't sing in church because like I am, I don't always feel it. I'm right there with you. I don't always feel it either. Here's the beauty of singing is that it connects knowing to feeling. We sing things that we know no matter what we feel. We sing things that we know to be true in God's word about our lives, about his rescue. No matter if you had a great morning, no matter if you failed, we're singing things that we know. And guess what? By the end of singing what we know, how we feel, some of you are nodding your head, starts to change. That's the power of rejoicing, particularly in light of rescue that we've experienced in Christ. I remember I went with my wife to India. That's where she's from. And we were up in uh, like a 10th story of an apartment complex. And just like in this trip to India, I mean, it was, it was a big culture shock. Like we had to warm up water to give ourselves a bath with an electric rod. Every time I did it, I thought I was going to die. But it was the way you were supposed to do this. And there was just like a bathroom with a toilet, but there was a drain and we just... Out I would just dump the water on me. And like, we were just kind of in a rough part of New Delhi, India with some of my wife's family. And they didn't have, like, there was pollution in the sky. I thought they just lit off fireworks all the time. And it was just pollution. They they didn't see all these evidences of like amazing things just to go along and feel happy about and sing. And yet all the time over every meal, they would sing. They would sing about the rescue. They were Christians. They would sing about the rescue they experienced in Jesus Christ. How they'd gone from death to life in Jesus Christ, darkness to light in Jesus Christ. And they would sing all the time because they knew some things, even if they didn't feel some things. See, that's what's happening here. They're not singing because these tambourines sound amazing. Like I was just thinking about, I don't even know how Miriam made these tambourines. Like they went through a sea. Like how are the tambourines still intact? but she's like, she's resourceful, right? She got them. She's got them working. I don't know if it was loud. I don't know if it was soft. I don't know what everybody's voices sounded like. And listen, that did not matter. That was not why they sang. They sang because they were enslaved and now they were free. They They sang because they had been rescued by the God of the universe. They sang to a Lord. Did you catch that? They call him Lord. He has thrown the rider and the horse into the sea. He has rescued us. We know you, Lord, means Yahweh, I am God. And they know him personally now. He's the covenant God. He's the self-sufficient God, but he is reaching out to them and rescuing them. And that's why they sang. And that's why we sing. Not because the musicians are great. And listen, they are here. Amen? 
the music does sound great, but that's not why we sing. We sing. Why should you sing? Because it, it's that knowing that changes your feeling because of what God has done and who he is. Simple step, singing. You could not sing, or you could. And God could use it for significant impact because that's what he does. That's who he is. So what, what small significant step is God calling you to take for significant impact? There, there are no small steps. They're all significant. One of them is maybe singing. We're going to sing right now. The band's going to come back up. I'm going to pray. And we're going to sing. And I would just encourage you to even take this moment and think about all the things God has rescued you from. All of his grace in your life all of the darkness and death that used to be there, that some of it still lingers, but he has rescued you. He is rescuing you. That one day there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more death. And that's the God we serve. And that's the God we sing to. I, I would invite you to think about that, consider that and respond in singing. All right, let's pray and do that together. Father in heaven, and thank you for this this time together. I thank you for this story of Miriam. And uh, God, I thank you just for her resourcefulness, for her resiliency, and seeing just something we can really all relate to, just a bit story. Uh, many of us, we just think our, our lives are just a bit story. Just small steps, insignificant. Just a song we sing, it's just words, it's just melodies. Stepping up to have a conversation with somebody, it's just, just a small act. And yet we know that you use all things for your good for our good. God, I pray that we would see that. And even as we sing, we would be reminded that, God, we may not have had to wait 80 years, but in some ways we've had to wait to see your provision, your purpose, your rescue. And that we might sing out of that joy, out of that celebration, not of who we are, but because of who you are and what you have done, that we might enjoy Jesus together and his rescue as we sing. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.